The Cicada's Song Yakisa Tanatua Sunrise 1. My boyfriend strangled me when I tried to leave him because he beat me. He used a telephone cord. The police will say I was a drug addict and a dropout. They will rule it a suicide. Ixchel tiptoed down the stairs, cringing every time the hardwood groaned, her feline eyes focused on the front door a few feet away. Holding her breath, she reached for the door when her phone blasted the song in the heights. Ixchel? Shit, she said underneath her breath, shutting it off. I made you breakfast. Ixchel sighed and walked into the kitchen where her aunt, Jimena, was busy at the stove scrambling eggs, even though she'd explained she was vegan. Until her daughter's death, Jimena had been a middle-aged and divorced vibrant woman, still hit on by 30-year-olds and usually the last one dancing at weddings and parties. Now, collapsing into her chest, she stood over the stove like an infirm elder. Ixchel sat at the table, and Jimena placed a plate of cubed papaya and black coffee in front of her. Ixchel gripped the ceramic mug and sipped the bitter brew, savoring the faint cocoa taste of Mexican coffee. Thank you, the fruit is enough. I forgot you don't eat eggs. Can I make you a quesadilla? Or beans? Ariana loved my bean tacos. Jimena choked on the last words, as if saying her daughter's name reopened the wound. No thanks, said Ixchel, eating papaya in silence while racking her brain for words to console her aunt. What can I tell her? Her 20-year-old daughter, Mariana, had been dead for four months. The police found her beaten and stabbed in a downtown alley, her body full of drugs. They arrested a druggie who'd confessed to stabbing her during a mugging, and the case had been closed. Was that your mother on the phone? asked Jimena. Ixchel nodded, her mouth full of fruit. Jimena sat down with a plate of scrambled eggs. You need to talk to her. I will when I'm ready to go back to Seattle. I can't stand her telling me how dangerous it is in Mexico City. She's right to be worried. When are you going back? Ixchel shrugged. A couple of more months. But you have a job interview next week. Ixchel stood up and poured coffee into her travel mug. It was time to flee. She didn't want to argue again about trying to get justice for Mariana, or why she shouldn't be riding on femicide. I already canceled the interview. Jimena pushed her intact plate aside and lit a cigarette. You need to get back to your life. And you need to eat something. Jimena tapped her ashes in her cup. I will. I need to buy some ashtrays. I quit when I was pregnant, but now... Ixchel hugged her aunt with one arm. Jimena and her mother shared the same short, dark body type, while Ixchel had inherited her American father's green eyes and height. At five feet ten inches, she towered over most Mexicans. She let go and dashed to the car, hating not knowing what to say. On the hood of the silver sedan was Nino, her aunt's cat, a knife sticking through its skull. Ixchel's stomach rolled, and she almost hurled the papaya and coffee. She peered around, but this early the street was empty. She searched for a way to hide it. She couldn't let Jimena see it. After wrapping the dead cat in a reusable shopping bag, she stuffed it at the bottom of the trash can. 
Then, Ixchel sat in the locked car, gripping the steering wheel, counting as she slowed her breathing. Every time a panic attack seized her, she stopped and practiced counting and breathing, evenly and slowly inhaling and exhaling, and it helped. Was the warning for Jimena or for me? Ixchel drove her cousin's little Kia toward Icatepec de Morelos, Mexico City's second most populous suburb and the most dangerous city in the entire country. Crowded and impoverished, it sprawled less than 30 minutes from Teotihuacan, where tourists and students climbed the pyramids at the sun and moon. She sighed, wishing she was going to the pyramids instead of hell. Soon, Mexico City's modern streets, shining buildings, well-kept fountains and monuments were replaced by dirty, dusty, busy avenues bursting with factories, slaughterhouses, and dairy processors. The buildings became shabbier and more menacing as she approached her destination. Ixchel bit the skin from the cuticle on her thumb. A weight settled in her chest and grew heavier with each mile. Two. My stepfather molested me when I was nine years old. I was eleven when he forced me to have intercourse once a week. One day, I told him I was bleeding. He got very mad and beat me until I died. They will bury me and say I died falling down the stairs. In a few months, my stepfather will molest my little sister. When she reached Ecatepec, Ixchel sank into the densely populated slums of tin-roofed homes, marching up the hills like haphazardly discarded boxes. Crosses marked where victims' bodies had been found. Stray dogs snuffled through heaps of trash, looking for something to eat, while a pale, sickly sun fought to shine through the smog. Near the canal, two men with bandanas covering their noses and mouths worked a dredger dragging the channel. Thirty miles long, it was Mexico City's sewer. Its brown, foul water flowed through the heart of Ecatepec, emptying the decaying waste of the city's residents. Tires, mattresses, dead animals discarded wives and girlfriends. Sparse, emaciated vegetation fought for survival amidst the plastic bottles, wrappers, bags, discarded shoes, and vomit that littered the banks of the canal. Ixchel wrinkled her nose at the putrid, gassy smell emanating from the thick, greasy waters. She approached the men, hand outstretched, and yelled over the roar of the machine. Buenos dias! The men cast a quick, stony glance at her and continued working. She got closer and took out her recorder, but stopped, frozen. A woman lay naked and bald, her breast stained with tar. Ixchel gasped, then realized it was a mannequin. With weak knees, she advanced. Hola, I am a reporter. Would you mind if I asked you a few questions? She flashed her biggest smile as she took slow, deep breaths. I'm safe she repeated mentally. The men traded looks. She was taller than them, with long brown hair falling in unkempt waves over shoulders molded slightly forward from hunching over trying to look shorter than she was. Her smile was wide, innocent, and curious. The larger man, who was built like a linebacker, shrugged and walked away. But the other said, I was about to take my break. Buy me a soda and I'll talk with you. He jumped off the dredger and strode unhurriedly toward a small stand on a corner where a woman sold street tacos. 
After introducing himself as Everardo, he launched into nonstop chatter with Ixchel, the taco vendor, and another customer who stood a short distance away, brazenly undressing Ixchel with his gaze. The customer wore a bandana, reminding Ixchel of a pirate. His dull eyes weighed on her as she tried to ignore him and focus on Everardo. She bought the dredger of soda and three tacos of suadero, a sinuous, cheap cut of beef, and a soda for herself, just trusting the taco's proximity to the canal. They sat on rickety, soiled plastic chairs as Everardo talked, shouting over the steady roar of the traffic. I was hired by a family. Their daughter went missing last week, he said, biting into a taco. He paused chewing and wiped grease and salsa from his chin with his sleeve. We haven't found her yet. In 2015, a judge ordered the canal to be dragged, and they found a lot of bodies. A lot of body parts, too. Hands, feet, even a head in a plastic bag. He continued eating casually, as if discussing the weather. They also found a 14-year-old girl missing from the year before. Ixchel shuddered. She had been unable to locate the family, but she had seen the photos from the coroner. She squeezed her eyes shut as the images of her poor, tortured body came rushing back. No wonder her family was gone. Sometimes, the only thing left for them to do was to run from the horror and pain. Can they? She imagined her aunt and all her family, running forever because such terrors were always snapping at your heels, ready to consume when you least expected it. Ixchel burped into her hand. Have you personally found any bodies? Everardo leaned back in his chair and looked up, squinting at the gray sky. Only body parts and bones, but I'm new at this. Families pay us, but we don't always find their loved ones. Or we find someone else's relative. They have to pay up front, so I still make my money. Advocacy groups argue the authorities don't report the real number of bodies. What do you think? Ah, Werita, I think they're right. My friend, El Piojo he tilted his head in the direction of his work partner, has been doing this for so many years that he just stopped talking. They say he's seen too many dead girls to say anything anymore. What do you think? The canal smells worse now because of the drought. When the waters come back, if they ever do, it won't smell as bad, but this place will stay evil. He stood up and returned his plastic plate to the stand. People say the canal is the gateway to hell. I think El Diablo lives there. You should be careful, too. Even Gringuitas are not safe here. He walked back to the canal. Hopping back into the dredger's driver's seat, he turned the key, making the huge machine cough into life in an explosion of black diesel exhaust. Recording some thoughts, Ixchel walked back to her car, the man with the bandana, the pirate, following her. He leaned on the driver's door. Ixchel stepped back and searched for help, but there was only the old woman at the taco stand and Everardo, busy with the machine. The dredger wouldn't hear a thing if this guy shot her with a machine gun. Ixchel squared her shoulders, pulled out her keys, and glared at the man. I need to leave. The man moved aside, his beady, red-rimmed eyes fixed on her breasts, chipped teeth flashing every time his lips smacked. I can tell you stories too, Werita. I've seen everything. Most of those girls were bad, you know. They liked to do bad things. 
Ixchel unlocked the door, trying to keep her distance, but the man leaned over and whispered in her ear, Do you like to do bad things? Do you want me to do? The man they called El Piojo yanked the pirate from the collar and slammed him on the ground. Hey, take it easy, Pinche Piojo. I'm just helping the señorita. Ixchel got in her car and turned to El Piojo. Thank you. The large man barely nodded as he balled his hands into mallet-sized fists and glared down at the pirate who scurried away. Ni pantala tonatiu. Noon. Three. I was 16 and would hang out with my two friends from childhood. They said I was one of the guys. One day, we were getting high on cement and weed when one of them grabbed my breasts. I told him to stop, but he didn't. My friends raped and stabbed me. I was still alive when they doused me with gasoline and lit me on fire. My crime was never investigated. Ixchel drove a few miles to the headquarters of a nonprofit created to advocate for the protection and safety of women in Ikatepec. The agency was on the second floor of a government building. Tile floors, fluorescent lights, metal file cabinets, and old wooden desks in the reception area had long lost any pretense of comfort or efficiency. The receptionist led Ixchel to the lawyer and director of the center, Yolanda. Curvy and tall, almost six feet in high heels, Yolanda wore her business suit tight and her skirt short, revealing long, shapely legs. Her dark hair was long and styled in rolling locks that must have taken at least an hour to set. Heavy makeup and bright red lipstick completed her look. Yolanda stared each shell in the eye, then looked at her jeans and a button-down sage-colored shirt. I rarely meet women as tall as me, she smiled. They sat in two armchairs that flanked a small table upon which the receptionist placed a tray with two cups of steaming coffee. Several framed degrees and plaques lined the walls, along with photos of assorted family members and miniature dogs. Ixchel thanked Yolanda for the meeting, turned on her recorder, set it on the table between them, and asked about the center. We are a small nonprofit funded by the state. We educate the community about femicide, help families through police procedures, and counsel families of murder victims, Yolanda said in a well-practiced monotone. Why do you do this? Isn't it dangerous? Yolanda sighed. If not me, then who? Mexico is among the 25 countries with the highest rate of femicide. According to the UN, nine women are murdered every day in Mexico. Some say it's much higher. From 2013 to 2017, 1,420 women were murdered right here in the state of Mexico. Ixchel sipped some coffee. Why do you think it's happening? What makes Mexico State so deadly for women? The official reason is that the state of Mexico is the most populous in the country, and we lack resources, services, and infrastructure. You said the official reason. What is the real reason? Well, while I agree economic factors play a part, they aren't the only reason. It's not just an Ikatepec either. Remember Juarez? It's worse in poorer communities, but upper-class women also get murdered. Why do you think gender violence is so bad here? Misogyny. 
Half the women in Mexico experience gender-based violence from their husbands, partners, fathers, and boyfriends, said Ixchel. Yolanda leaned back in the armchair and crossed her legs. My turn. Why are you here? Your email said you moved from Seattle four months ago. Ixchel turned off the recorder and put it in her purse. I graduated from college last year, and I'm writing a... Ixchel Cummings is an unusual name, and easy to find on social media. Your cousin was Mariana Villa. Ixchel nodded, even though it wasn't a question. Mariana's mother, Jimena Gantara, is my mother's sister. My father is American, so I was born in Seattle and came to help when Mariana happened. The report on femicide is a freelance project. Yolanda crossed her legs. Does your family believe the druggie killed her? Do you? Yolanda uncrossed her legs and leaned in, grasping Ixchel's arm. I'm on your side. Ixchel sighed. We know he didn't. An independent autopsy reported Mariana died of strangulation. The stabbing wounds occurred after she was dead. A private investigator procured video from a security camera outside the club where Mariana's friends had last seen her. The video showed her ex-boyfriend putting a very intoxicated Mariana into his sports car, but the ex swore she leaped out of his car at a stoplight and ran away. He even produced witnesses. I'm so sorry. Does your family believe it was Dante who killed Mariana? We know it was him. The first time Mariana broke up with him, he beat her up. He convinced her to keep it secret. My aunt blames herself because she told her to let it go. Yolanda squeezed her hand. And because Dante Vignau is a famous soccer player and nephew of Mexico's state's prosecutor, he wasn't even considered a suspect. Ixchel nodded and slumped in the chair. I haven't told my aunt yet, but the druggie that supposedly killed Mariana was murdered in jail yesterday. Then today, I found my aunt's cat on the hood of my car. Dead. A knife through its skull. Yolanda gasped. Those are serious threats. Ixchel shrugged. Yolanda frowned. Mothers seeking justice for their daughters are routinely murdered. A few years ago, they murdered one in front of the courthouse. Both you and your aunt are in danger. Ixchel stood up. Neither of us is giving up. I'm sorry this happened to Mariana and your family. Yolanda reached for Ixchel's hand. But you are out of your league. This isn't the United States. If you cross the wrong man, the police won't protect you. The police might even kidnap and kill you. Ixchel reached for the door. I appreciate your concern, but I'm going to the prosecutor's press conference. Wait, said Yolanda, scribbling on a legal pad, then tearing off the page and handing it to Ixchel. Look for Amaya. She's an artist and educator helping victims heal and working on stopping femicide. And please be careful. Just last year, 22 reporters were murdered in Mexico. This country is dangerous for women and journalists. 4. I was 21 years old and cleaned the priest's house and took care of him. Some nights, he would ask me to take a bath with him, and then he would have sex with me. When I got pregnant and started showing, he asked me to go to the Sierra with him. 
After having sex with me on the ground, he strangled me. He will tell my parents that I ran away with my boyfriend. My bones will be scattered by animals, never to be found. A woman wearing an apron over a calf-length cotton dress and a gray wool cardigan waited for each shell by her car. Her graying braids framed a wide face and deep brown eyes. She had the look of a victim's mother, as if something inside had been rubbed out, leaving a permanent void. Senorita, can you help me? I heard you're an American reporter. I'm sorry, senora, but I need to be in Toluca. Please, senorita, the woman followed. My daughter's husband killed her, and he is still free. I'm sorry, that's terrible. I wish I could help. Ixchel got to her car and unlocked it. Please, the woman insisted, showing her a wrinkled photo of a girl in a violet quinceanera dress. The center can't help me. We went to the police after he beat her up. She had a black eye, a fat lip, bruises on her ribs and stomach and back. Ixchel opened the door and sat in the driver's seat. The woman stood holding the car door open with her body. They said she couldn't file charges because her injuries would take less than 15 days to heal. He killed her when she went to pick up her clothes. He... I'm sorry, senora, said Ixchel tearfully, pulling on the door until the woman stepped away, then yanking it closed. She drove off, wondering what she was doing. I was a 36-year-old doctor. The husband of a patient who had a miscarriage forced me into a car at gunpoint. He drove to a vacant lot and shot me in the head. Then he decapitated me, flayed the skin off my head, and threw my body in the canal. Thick woods stretched into the surrounding hills that flanked the road to Toluca. Pine resin and moist, rich earth scented the air. The woods reminded Ixchel of the Pacific Northwest. She stopped at a roadside tent for a quesadilla with squash blossoms, but it sat heavy in her stomach. She dialed her aunt, leaving her a message. Hi, you said Mariana fought with her best friend when she posted photos of her after Dante beat her up and the post has since disappeared? Could you check on her computer or iPad if she still has them? Gracias. Ixchel closed her eyes. The girl in the violet dress, her mother's face, intruded on her thoughts. She blinked and shook her head, trying to dislodge them. But now, body parts floating in water and trash clouded her mind. Her stomach rolled and clenched. Ixchel bolted out of the car, vomiting her lunch. Still rutching, she got back in the car and gripped the steering wheel, waiting for her hands to stop shaking. She took a couple of deep breaths and bit her index finger, something she hadn't done since she was 12 years old. Calm down, she said, starting the car and continuing on the highway. I was 14 years old and loved One Direction and Justin Bieber. On my way to meet a friend, a man grabbed me and forced me into an abandoned business. He raped and strangled me, dismembered me, and threw my remains in the canal. Eighteen months from today, they will find my skull and feet in a plastic bag. Ixchel parked in a lot near a modern, sleek courthouse made of concrete and marble. The large plaza in front of the building was packed with protesters. Sernena no es condena, chanted the crowd. Mothers raised pink signs bearing photos of their dead or missing daughters as grandchildren clung to their skirts. 
a young woman with a shaved head spoke through a bullhorn. We are here to protest the lack of action by the governor, the prosecutor, and the police. Their apathy is part of the problem. No one is talking about this, but we are. In the last year, we had almost as many women murdered here as Ciudad Juarez had in ten years combined. The crowd chanted, Ni una mas! As family members of those who have been slaughtered, we are here to make sure they are never forgotten. A young man wearing a purple t-shirt with a drawing of an insect with a stout body and membranous wings handed her a flyer. At least two dozen young people wore the same shirt. Pointing at it, she asked what it meant. It's a cicada, a symbol of resiliency and resurrection. Like them, we always rise up to live and fight for change, he said. Ixchel weaved through the crowd until she spotted the sound system and the performance director. A heavy-set woman in her mid-thirties with fine-drawn features, hazel eyes, and fair skin was monitoring a soundboard. Amaya, I am Ixchel. Yolanda gave me your name. The woman looked up in surprise, ignored Ixchel's outstretched hand, and kissed her on the cheek. Hola, I'm a little busy at the moment. Do you mind waiting here until the end of the performance? A conch trumpeted through the square, its hauntingly ancient basso note silencing the crowd. Holding the conch was a trans woman dressed in a scarlet huipil embroidered with branches, leaves, and flowers in green and gold. Her headdress was almost three times the size of her head and shaped like a tree, an image of a bird interwoven among the feathered branches. From the branches, butterflies, spiders, and streaming ribbons simulating water fanned out and flowed with each of her rhythmic steps. Multicolored beads hung heavily on her chest. Large feathered earrings obscured her earlobes. A pendant from which three menacing fangs dangled elongated her nose. Children in bright clothes followed her, carrying baskets brimming with fruit and corn. She danced slowly, proudly playing the conch and keeping time with her feet until she had made her way to the center of the plaza. The children placed the baskets around her and danced away. Two performers, dressed in heavily embroidered leather loincloths, beat out rhythms on large drums made from animal hides. They were joined by the of rattles wrapped around the wrists and ankles of six female dancers. One of the female dancers said in a loud voice, Thank you, great goddess, for your gifts. Thank you for allowing us to live in peace and harmony with nature and one another. Without warning, the deep, resonant drumming thundered again through the plaza. The dancers spun and twirled in intricate patterns around the goddess, matching the drum's cadence with their ankle rattles. Just as suddenly, the drumming turned chaotic. The dancers flung themselves to the earth as two loincloth-clad males, brandishing obsidian daggers, leaped into their midst. They thrust menacingly, flying acrobatically back and forth. Pointing their daggers at the goddess, they simulated stabs and slashes into her body until she lay crumbled on the ground. One of the male dancers unfurled a long banner and held it high in the place where the goddess had been. A fanged horned toad dominated the banner. Its thick-lipped mouth spread widely to reveal opposing rows of pointed, blood-stained teeth. A different male herded the female dancers into a line before the toad and ritualized a blood offering to it from each woman. 
The female dancers staggered to one side, standing shoulder to shoulder, except for the last woman. As the woman got on her hands and knees, one of the warriors took the sixth and final woman and laid her over the human altar. Handling his dagger, he mimicked extracting the woman's heart, holding it high above his head in the direction of the sun before offering it to the toad. Once the sacrifice was completed, the warrior brusquely kicked the woman off the altar onto the ground. A martial cadence thundered from the drums across the plaza. Two conquistadors approached in lockstep, aimed their blunderbusses, and shot the two male dancers. To the relentless beat of the drums, the conquistadors pantomimed the rape of the female dancers and the destruction of imagined columns and temples. Ixchel looked around at the swelling crowd. Men and women stood transfixed. Parents hoisted children onto their shoulders. A man in a suit stared at them from across the plaza, out of place in a crowd of families and women. She pointed him out to Amaya. He's not here for the performance. Amaya sighed. They're always watching, and they want us to know. Ixchel shuddered and forced herself to focus on the performance. Cassicked in black and wearing horrific masks, Three new male dancers entered the plaza, gyrating and gesticulating lewdly, punctuating their lascivious moves with exaggerated signs of the cross. They were devils, their features angular and sharp, blood dripping from their jowls, hands painted crimson. Surrounding the female dancers, they performed a dance of rape and death. With four strident beats, the drums fell silent and the devils froze. Female dancers lay strewn on the ground, limbs askew at impossible angles, a portrait of slaughter and dismemberment. From somewhere amidst the crowd, another conch sounded a higher pitch note. A woman of around 60 years of age, dressed in a long pink dress with the photo of a young woman pinned to her chest, walked into the circle, leading eight other women similarly attired. They cradled Beledoras in small, roughened brown hands and slowly encircled the goddess's body. Low, slow thrumming came from the drums, accompanying the women as they danced in an ever-tightening spiral around the goddess. As they drew closer to the center, they lifted the masks from the devils and cast them down. The men behind the masks stood for a few drumbeats, downcast, repentant, before joining the dance. Slowly, the slain female dancers gathered themselves and pulled children and men from the audience. Dancers passed the baskets of fruit and sweets among the crowd. Spectators, actors, and dancers shared the food and chatted, as if at a party. Amaya stretched her arms above her head, allowing the gaping sleeves of her traditional Mexican blouse to reveal her unshaved armpits. Lowering her arms in a graceful way, she said, what do you think? Ixchel swallowed, blinking. Dramatic. Amaya raised her eyebrows. It's a way to stand up for the victims, to bear witness to their life and murder and make sure they are remembered. This is one way we hold the powerful accountable for the social constructs behind femicide. The woman with the shaved head ran over to them. She kissed Amaya on the mouth and, without speaking, rolled cable around her elbow. Valeria, this is Ixchel. Valeria glanced in her direction, nodded, and continued packing. Amaya pulled out a bin from under the console table. 
Our performance mixes trained actors and dancers with members of the community. Together, they can express their internal and communal struggles through myths and metaphors. In this case, to address the killing of women. Blushing, her heart pounding in her ears, Ikshel said, Isn't this just a band-aid? A little magical thinking? The victim's families sing kumbaya and go home to the graves while the murderers kill again. Amaya opened her mouth, but Ikshel raised her hand. I've got a press conference to catch. As she dashed away, Amaya's voice rang in her ears. The only way to stop them aside is by creating a new cosmology. Una qui tu Sunset I was 16 years old and took a public van after school to get home. One day, I was the only passenger. The driver took me to an empty lot. He raped and tortured me, biting off my nipples and toes. After he broke my neck, he left me covered in trash. I was taken to the morgue, but they could not identify me and buried me in a common grave. My mother will look for me every day for a year and never find me. Ikshel hustled into a seat in the front row. The presentation started with the typical formalities and a long-winded speech by the state prosecutor. He exaggerated his accomplishments and blathered on about the changes made. When her phone buzzed, she glanced at it, recoiling. The room around her shifted and swirled. Time slowed down. Mariana's photo appeared on her phone. Eyes downcast, she held a towel covering her breasts. Purple and violet bruises covered the right side of her face, her left eye swollen shut. But it was the bite mark above her left breast that made her stand up. Maybe because she was young and pretty, the prosecutor looked at her. Senorita, he said politely, nodding, waiting for her question. Ikshel took the wireless microphone from an aide. Mr. Prosecutor, how can you sleep at night after covering up the murder of Mariana Villa by your nephew, Dante Vignau? Ikshel held up her phone. Look, this is what your nephew did to her a month before he killed her. You had it removed from social media. The court official who had given her the microphone tried to wrestle it away from her, but Ikshel held on as people stared. Heart pounding in her ears, she stood on the chair. The prosecutor recoiled, his face beat red. Your nephew murdered Mariana Villa. Not only did you cover for him, your thugs threatened us. The prosecutor glared at Ikshel. I'm sorry about your cousin. But if she hadn't been so drunk that she jumped out of Dante's car, she'd be alive today. He turned away. An officer seized Ixchel by the waist, and another yanked the microphone out of her hand. Do something! Ni una mas! Women are not disposable! A few hundred people stared as the police dragged her from the auditorium and pushed her down the long corridor toward the exit. Ixchel struggled. I'm going to die, and it's going to hurt. Her legs buckled, and the officers yanked her up, one on each side. Please, where are you taking me? I'm an American citizen. They dragged her toward a patrol car. One of them whispered in her ear, his breath hot. We're going to take you for a ride. This can't be happening. Ikshav racked her brain for a way out as the mint's fingers dug into her arms. The transgender woman, still dressed in full regalia, stepped in front of the patrol car and charged them, screaming, 
Help, help, I'm being kidnapped. She crashed into the three of them, slamming them on the floor. Help her, someone yelled, and two dozen masked protesters, many wearing the purple cicada t-shirt, tackled the officers. A woman yanked Ixchel up by the arm. Run! Ixchel bolted through the crowd, holding her bag underneath her arm like a football until the other end of the plaza. In the parking lot, an officer was leaning on her car. Fuck! She crossed the street when Amaya drove up in an old 69 VW Beetle, with the bumper tied to the chassis by a length of wire. Get in! Ixchel flung herself into the back where a blanket hid the torn seat. Valeria, the bald-headed woman from before, sat in the passenger seat, scowling. You're kidding me, said Valeria. She isn't coming. Amaya stepped on the gas. We have no choice. The police are after her. She will be safe with us. Valeria glared at Ixchel. You're lucky they didn't take you. What do you think you're doing? You can get killed for something like this here. You're not in the U.S. I'm sorry, I just lost it. Why are you so angry? Because we live here. We don't have the luxury of losing it, then running back to the safety of the United States. You're putting us all in danger. There is a lot more at stake than avenging your rich cousin. Ixchel kept silent, not knowing what to say. She used her jacket to cover the wet stain on her jeans. She'd peed herself when the police were dragging her away. Amaya maneuvered through the traffic, weaving from lane to lane and in between cars, Valeria watching their rear. Valeria's eyes bulged. Someone is following us. Amaya glanced at the mirror. Are you sure? Yeah, you can't miss the tinted windows. Hang on. Amaya stepped on the gas and they lurched forward as again she threaded through the traffic, but now at much higher speed. Without a seatbelt, Ixchel slid from one side of the car to the other, grateful her stomach was empty. Amaya broke suddenly, sending Ixchel crashing into the back of the front seat. Blood sputtered from her nose. Sorry, Amaya yelled as she jerked the car in a sharp angle and sped off down another road. She turned into a narrow street and waited with the motor running. Ixchel pulled tissue out of her bag and held it against her nose. Are you all right? asked Amaya as she put the car in neutral and studied the road. It's just a bloody nose. A metallic taste filled Ixchel's mouth. They waited in silence. Ixchel jammed her hands under her armpits to keep them from shaking. The scent of their fear permeated the car. After ten minutes, that felt more like an hour, Amaya exhaled. We lost them. Ixchel blushed. I'm sorry to cause you problems. Thank you. Valeria turned in her seat. You could have gotten us killed. Amaya drove down the street, the three of them watching the cars around them until she found the highway. A few miles later, they left it for a bumpy country road heading west into the mountains. Unbroken stretches of pine trees flanked the fractured asphalt road. As they climbed into the foothills, the temperature dropped. Where are we going? asked Valeria, turning to Amaya. Amaya stared at the road, lips pursed. Valeria's eyes grew wide. Fuck, you can't bring her to Tio Natalie. She's a gringa. I'm not a gringa, I'm a chicana, said Ixchel, crouching in the back. Where are we going? We're going to see a friend that can help. Where? 
I can't tell you, Amaya said. Valeria kept up an uninterrupted monologue during the drive on colonialism and paternalism. Ixchel rode in silence, recognizing that Valeria's discourse was meant for her. She swallowed. I'm an idiot. I made things worse for nothing. They left the highway and took a road that twisted up a forested hill for miles until turning onto a narrow dirt road. Long past twilight, they pulled up in front of a corrugated gate that bridged large stone walls topped with barbed wire and broken glass and obscured the property beyond. No signs or numbers identified the address. Amaya honked the VW's horn three times. The gate swung open noiselessly, allowing access into the compound as a man stepped out of the shadows to close the gates behind them. On a narrow, unpaved, rutted path, they crept forward in the dark until they came to a large house. The car's flickering headlights illuminated a temescal in the center of a clearing, which opened up to the side of the main house. Ixchel texted her aunt that she would not be out until tomorrow before turning her phone off. I was 42 years old and very close to my children. Their father strangled me because a divorce would have been bad for his political career. He had lovers but wanted a new wife. His influential friends said I was depressed and hung myself. There will be no investigation and no autopsy. My daughters will always resent me for taking my life. The wooden door swung open and a thin, middle-aged woman dashed out to greet them, hugging each one of them. Martina called about what happened. You're safe now. I'm glad you were here. She ushered them into a cabin of wood and rock. The living room's vaulted ceiling had rustic beams and panoramic windows that invited the forest into the house. A fire crackled in a stone fireplace at the front of the living room. Floor-to-ceiling paintings in bold reds, blues, oranges, and purples hung on the white walls. Ixchel recognized the great goddess from the performance, painted against a lava-spewing volcano. Then her eyes landed on a woman with the lower body of an aguete, a Mexican cypress. Gasping, she regarded the magical creatures, the vibrant colors, and the illusion of movement. I'm in Yvette Krause's home. You must be Ixchel. Please, come have something to eat, said Yvette, trying to tame her cascade of black curls with a scrunchie. She smiled, and little wrinkles spread from the corner of her brown eyes. Ixchel found it hard to believe she was in her early sixties. She moved with grace and ease, with a youthful flair. Ixchel blushed. I hate to bother you, but I had a little accident. She looked down at her jeans. I peed myself when the police dragged me away. I didn't even realize it at the moment. Yvette took her by the arm. Come with me. She led Ixchel up the stairs to her bedroom the unmade bed reminding her of their intrusion. The alarm clock flashed 10.30. Looking Ixchel up and down, Yvette pulled yoga pants from a drawer, some black panties, and handed them to her. You can shower in my bathroom. After a shower and a change of clothes, Ixchel walked into the living room, where Yvette and a couple of women she recognized from the performance were huddled. How many? asked Yvette. There are two pickups. They may have been waiting for more, said the transgender woman from the protest. They glared at me when I passed them. 
Yvette turned to Ixchel. Ixchel, Martina, I think you've met. We don't have time for niceties. The two men that were following you are hiding nearby, probably waiting for reinforcements. Have you called the police? asked Ixchel, her heart sinking as the alarm started up again. Yolanda walked in, holding her phone. Cariño, these men are state police. The prosecutor sent them. Ixchel's heart pounded in her chest. I've put you all in danger. I should leave. But her feet felt cemented to the floor. Yvette turned to the man who'd opened the gate. He rubbed his face and glanced out the window. Teofilo, take your family in my car and drive the back way to Toluca. Go to my house and stay there until I call you. With all due respect, Signora Yvette, I'm staying. My place is here with you and Teonatli. Yvette smiled. Gracias, Teofilo. I appreciate your loyalty. But you know Teonatli's mission and our parts in it. You and your daughter must continue in case we fail. Go now before they arrive. Your husband would never forgive me if I left you. He'd never forgive you if our mission fails. He too understands Teonatli's work is more important than our individual lives. Teofilo looked around at the women inside. I'll say goodbye to Teonatli. He hugged Yvette, then dashed out of the room. A cold weight settled in Ixchel's stomach, her lungs constricted, forcing a dry hack out of her mouth. She wished she were back home in Seattle, drinking coffee with her mother as they watched the rain, catching up on gossip. I should have called her. She swallowed, imagining her aunt when she found out she'd also been murdered. Taking a step forward, her locks dripping water down her back, she said in a shaky voice, let me go to them. I'm the one who fucked up. I shouldn't put you in danger. Yvette grasped her hand. No, neuna mas. You have a choice. You can leave with Teofilo and his family, or you can stay and help us. Ixchel looked around the kitchen. Valeria and Amaya were leaning against the wall, their arms around each other. Martina, Yolanda, and two other women in their 30s, dressed in the purple t-shirts from the march, and a woman in her 50s with short, curly hair stood in a cluster around them. How could they stop the killers? There was no way these women could resist corrupt, armed police officers. But there was no way out. At least I'll stand up to these murderers. I'm staying. It's time said the oldest and tiniest woman Ixchel had ever seen. Teofilo guided her slowly, grasping her arm. Her wispy white braids laced with colorful red and gold ribbons fell on her red wipil. Yvette knelt in front of the ancient woman. Teonantli, we don't have time to purify in the Temescal. Should we begin? Teonantli nodded. She whispered something in a strange and musical language. Yvette nodded. Martina, please get some bread from the pantry. Martina yanked open the cupboards and pulled out a brown bag, which she emptied on a platter, piling it with bolillos. Yvette took a black clay bowl filled with gray cones and lit them. Sweet copal incense drifted through the kitchen. Take this to the living room, she said. I'll prepare the sacred tea. 
The short-haired woman led the way, holding the smoking bowl. Martina brought the bread while Valeria and Amaya lit candles and placed them around the room. Another woman led Teonantri to the couch. Ixchel was cutting the bread when Valeria touched her arm. I'm sorry I was rude in the car. I thought you were a spoiled American with a savior complex. Ixchel nodded, placing slices of bread on a ceramic plate. Valeria stared at the wall ahead. My sister was murdered. I'm sorry. Her name was Irene. I wanted to bring her justice, but I learned the movement is more than her, or me, or Mariana. I get it. Who is the older woman? She asked, glancing at the elder. Teonantli is a curandera who practices a medicine older than the Aztecs and Teotihuacanos, Valeria said as she washed clay mugs in the sink. The patriarchy brought us science and civilization, but also pollution, war, inequity, and misery, and it's destroying us. Yvette and Teonantli have taught us those old medicine ways which we have to share with the world before it's too late. Tonight, we're going to birth a new cosmology, a different way of viewing ourselves and our relationship with the world and others. Ixchel kept silent, not wanting to antagonize Valeria after she'd just apologized. This talk was magical thinking, a way to avoid thinking about what would happen to them in a few hours. She was terrified, but the company of the women somehow soothed and strengthened her. The women sat on the floor around Teonatli, who had positioned herself cross-legged facing east. Yvette turned out the lights and cast them into flickering candlelight as shadows danced on the walls and paintings. She sat next to Teonantli and passed the plate with bread. Holding a piece of flaky bread to her mouth, she said, Take a piece, hold it in your hand, and tell it all your sins, she murmured into it. Ixchel looked around at the women whispering to their piece of bread and did the same. Yvette put her piece back on the plate and passed it to the woman next to her. This is the tradition of the filth eater. Reflect on the bad things you have done and send them to the pastry. Then give it to Teonantli to eat. Ixchel thought about all the things she hated about herself, her regrets and the time she had hurt others. She watched Teonantli shove the pieces in her gap-toothed mouth. Yvette gave the old woman tea to help her swallow the bread. Martina blew the conch. It's time, said Yvette. Yuel Nepantla, Midnight Yolanda and a woman from the protest brought trays with mugs of steaming tea and passed them around. At Yvette's signal, they drank. The taste of earth and honey washed across Ixchel's palate and down her throat. Wrapping her hands around the warm mug, she cleared her throat, fixing her eyes on Yvette. If the men are coming, shouldn't we arm ourselves? At least we'll go down fighting, maybe kill one or two. Yvette smiled. You're trying to stop femicide using the patriarchy's tools. Tonight, you'll experience a new way that embraces the feminine, that targets evildoers, and that doesn't subjugate, but lifts everyone. Ixchel was about to ask what she meant, but Martina placed a drum between her legs and beat out a heartbeat, while Teonantli sang in a high, reedy voice in a language beyond time. 
ghostly shadows flitted across the walls and the bodies and faces of the women who sat in the firelight. A dull ache spread from the base of Ixchel's skull. Sipping tea, she willed the queasiness away. The flames in the fireplace, the dancing candlelight, mesmerized her as drumming filled the room. Colors vibrated, pulsing with each drumbeat as she stared, transfixed by the weave of the wool rug. The room stretched beyond her vision. What was in the tea? she asked, expecting Valeria to be seated next to her. Instead, an older woman, her face as brown and wrinkled as Teonatli's, met her eyes. Indigenous women replaced the women in the circle. Ixchel's smooth hands were now deep brown with prominent, pulsing veins tracing the outlines of her bones. Her fingers were gnarled and twisted. They'd transformed into their ancestors. Ixchel inhabited the body of the first women on Earth, experiencing a different way of knowing which she could never put into words. What did you give me? Ixchel asked, unsure she'd uttered a sound. Cemented in place, her body swayed with the drum's relentless cadence, pulsing from deep within, from the stones of the fireplace, the heart of the earth. Flesh melted from the women's faces, exposing their skeletons, transforming them into Katrinas from the Day of the Dead. Thunder roared, hammering her ears, and the walls disappeared. Pines surrounded them on three sides. Ixchel blinked. I must be dreaming. But light rain fell on her head, rolling down her face. Where the circle opened, and from beyond where the fireplace had been crackling just a few minutes before, the majestic volcano, Popocatepetl, dark and menacing, its peak covered in snow, beckoned. Teonantli stood facing the volcano, arms raised, chanting. As one, the women repeated the unfamiliar but beautifully fluid mantra. The air thickened with energy. A low rumble from deep in the earth rose in a crescendo of waves. Drumbeats kept time as the chanting matched the earth's moans and groans, louder and faster. Pines, oaks, and oyamelas creaked as they swayed back and forth. The volcano appeared to inhale before roaring to life in a frenzy of lava and ash. Black smoke spewed from the mountain's maw, forming a gigantic tarantula, its legs black, hairy, striped with red rings. A low hissing sound came from its fang-covered jaws. The black arachnid advanced on the circle, molting. As it shed its skin, a woman's skeleton, wrapped in a red and black reboso, emerged from the discarded shell. Standing in front of them, the volcano behind her, she raised her hands and sang in a high voice, each syllable vibrating in Ixchel's core. For centuries, men ruled, imprisoning the Earth Mother in the bowels of the Earth. Humans forgot where they came from and where they will return. Men fooled themselves into believing they were masters of the earth. Your ways are greed, war, destruction. The farther from your mother, the more violent you've become. You have called me back, releasing me from prison. The earth mother summons all mothers, sisters, and daughters. The earth mother calls all fathers, brothers, and sons. The earth mother demands no sacrifices. 
I give myself freely. The Earth Mother loves all her children, but those who hurt or oppress others will cease or pay. The Earth Mother will cool the fire, pacify the rage, and restore balance. The Earth Mother reminds humans that they are part of nature, not above it, not apart from it. The Earth Mother, together with you, gives birth to a new era. Popocatepetl erupted with a deafening blast, igniting the forest sky in a blood-red ethereal light. The house shook as if someone was trying to rip it off its foundations, flinging the women to the floor that rippled underneath them. A low, basso grumble from deep in the earth assaulted their ears together with the crashing of glass and thumping of objects. The house creaked as white dust fell like snow from the ceiling. Ixchel yelled, Why won't it stop? But a fine ash filled her mouth, drying her throat. After the longest eight minutes, the shaking ceased. The women sat up slowly, looking around, dusting the white ash off their clothes and hair. The shards of window glass littered the floor, allowing the cool night air to fill the room, making Ixchel shiver. Ixchel peeked into the kitchen and gasped. Mounds of shattered dishes, smashed jars, baskets, and dented cans from the cupboards and shelves covered the floor. Fissures and cracks decorated the once smooth white walls. The tarantula woman was gone. Does anyone have a cell phone? asked Yvette, looking at her phone. I don't have any signal. Ixchel pulled hers out. There were no bars. Amaya turned on the light switch, but the power was out. Valeria helped Teonatli up from the floor and guided her back to the couch. Ixchel and Amaya headed to the kitchen to clean up when the front door burst open. Two state police officers stood, pointing automatic rifles at them. The women froze, except for Yvette, who bolted to shield Teonatli. Don't move or I'll shoot. We're going to wait here until the vans come for you, said the man with a mustache, glaring at them. Yolanda said, Please, there's no need to. Now we can do it the easy way, the man growled, shooting at the ceiling, making plaster rain on their heads. Or the hard way. Either way, we get paid. Teonantli's voice blasted, strong and firm. They are all dead. The mountain buried them in the landslide. Part of the road is gone. The younger officer scoffed and spat on the floor. Yvette took a step forward. It's over. No one can get here, and you can't leave. There is no other way off this mountain. The older officer with the mustache took out his radio and tried several times to get through to his comandante. Finally, giving up, he glared at Yvette. Then I'll just kill you all now. Please, you don't have to spill any more blood. It's over, said Yvette. The officer raised and aimed his rifle at Yvette's chest. A hissing sound came from a plate-sized tarantula on the ceiling. The man glanced at it, then back at the woman. It isn't over until the prosecutor orders it so. As he fired, the spider slammed into him as it grew to its original size, now five times the man. Amaya shoved Yvette to the floor. The spider straddled the officer, sinking her bat-sized fangs into his neck 
Blood spurted from his mouth, smothering his screams. The other man fired into the spider's back, but the bullets bounced off, ricocheting around the room. The wake of a bullet caressed Ixchel's left cheekbone as she ducked under the couch. The spider ripped out the man's neck, almost decapitating him, letting his body crash on the floor, then advanced on the other officer, who dropped his gun and turned to flee. But the spider slammed him into the earth, holding him down with her back legs. Weaving long filaments of tinsel silk from her front legs around the thrashing man, until only his muffled cries emanated from the brown cocoon he had become. The spider picked him up with her fangs. She carried him out the open gap that was once sliding glass doors, disappearing into the early morning dark. I was in my home in Ikatepec, and my husband was beating me because he was in a bad mood. This time, I was afraid he would kill me. The house shook, there was a roar, and suddenly everything was dark. When I woke up, my husband was on his back, trapped under debris up to his neck. He whispered, Hurry up, puta, and get me some help. I crawled out and away when two rescue workers ran to me. They asked if there was anyone else trapped in the house. I said no. Ixchel blinked rapidly and looked around the room. Was she hallucinating? Amaya and Valeria stared at the gap where the spider had disappeared. They saw it too. Was this a collective illusion? A soft moan interrupted her thoughts. Teonantali was on the floor, Yvette kneeling by her. Teonantali's been shot, she cried, pressing her hands against the tiny woman's right ribs, a dark brown stain spreading over her red wipil. The women rushed to her. Teonantali blinked rapidly and her mouth moved. Yvette leaned over, placing her ear close to Teonantali's mouth and listened. They whispered in Nahuatl. Martina leaned over, taking Teonatali's pulse. If we don't get her to the hospital now, she won't make it. Amaya grabbed her purse and pulled out her keys. We can't call an ambulance, but I can drive her. Yvette shook her head, grasping Teonatali's hand. If we don't take her, she'll die, said Amaya, glancing at the other women's faces and signs of support. The road was destroyed by a landslide that buried the vans. There's a secret way out, but it's over dirt roads and would take at least two hours to get to the nearest hospital. Amaya jingled the keys. Are you sure there was a landslide? You know there was. Yvette wiped a tear from her eye. Teonantli says it's her time to leave. She wants to die here, with us. Help me carry her to her room. Amaya threw her purse on the floor. Fuck! Yolanda rushed out, saying, I'll check for damage in her room. While Amaya and Valeria taped cardboard to the shattered window, Ixchel and Martina carried Teonatli to her room. She was light as a pillow. They laid her gently on the bed as the women gathered round. Yvette sat, holding Teonatli's right hand in both of hers. Teonatli says to give her messages to take to the other side. The women took turns whispering messages of love to Teonatli. She sang softly in a language Ixchel did not recognize, the siblings cascading out in between shuddering intakes of breath. When it was Ixchel's turn, she leaned over and murmured in her ear, Please tell Mariana I'm sorry I didn't stay in touch.
She didn't deserve what happened to her. And I promise I'll never stop fighting against violence. Tell her I'll watch over her mom as my own. I love her. Ixchel took her place around the bed. Martina put her arm around her. They watched Yvette speak softly into Natalie's ear. What language is that? Ixchel asked. Nahuatl, said Martina. Teonatli was Yvette's nanny. She taught her the old ways. Teonatli's breathing became imperceptible. Even with the cardboard over the window, Dawn's pink and golden light snuck into the bedroom as birds called to each other from their nests. Valeria sang in a high and clear voice about a cicada rising from the earth to sing to the sun. The lyrics by Chilean singer Mercedes Sosa pierced her soul. A song for the disappeared, the silenced, the erased, the invisible, the raped, the dispossessed, the forgotten, the conquered, the colonized, the abandoned, the solitary, the tortured, the murdered. The pain engulfed her unbearable. She feared it would break her until Martina squeezed her shoulder as Valeria sang. During the shipwreck and darkness, someone will rescue you. She wasn't alone. Together, they could bear the world's pain and their own. Teo Nantli died. There was no flash of light, no sonic boom. She simply stopped breathing. The women stood side by side, arms wrapped around each other. Valeria sang Gracias a la Vida, with most women joining in. Ixchel swallowed, flooded by images of her mother and Aunt Jimena singing it during Thanksgiving in Seattle. She closed her eyes, watching her father complain about the turkey having mole instead of gravy, as Ixchel and her brother, José Luis, cleared the table. Mariana, laughing with delight, dashing to the window to greet a rare snowstorm that stranded them for two days. Ixchel returned to the present when Yvette closed Teonatli's eyes, muttering a prayer in Nahuatl. The women scattered, some to prepare the body, and Ixchel, Amaya, and Valeria to pick up the debris and check on the power. At 6.30 in the morning, Martina called them to the kitchen. The power is back! The women huddled around the small television in the kitchen. Images of destroyed buildings filled the screen as a scroll on the bottom read, 9.2 earthquakes strike central Mexico at midnight for eight minutes. Epicenter under the Pocopatepetl. A female anchor spoke to the audience, and Martina raised the volume. The president has called this earthquake miraculous because the damage was less than would be expected during an earthquake of this magnitude and duration. Still, there are many victims and our hearts go out to their families. The state police headquarters was destroyed while the prosecutor was conducting an emergency meeting with top officials. Although the search for survivors has begun, no one is expected to survive. Video over the journalist's right shoulder played scenes that resembled a bombed-out Palestine after weeks of missile strikes. A pile of rubble was all that remained after a hotel, close to tourists to host the leaders of Mexico and Colombia's drug cartels, collapsed, leaving no survivors. The club in the basement of the hotel, where a party was underway, had ignited and exploded, burning the drug lords and their minions to death. Hope stirred in Ixchel's chest. 
Was this the start of the new way? The earth purging itself of the evil to usher in change. Her phone buzzed. Their cell phone signal again, she said, stepping out into the clear morning as everyone scrambled for their phones. Hello? Hello? Gracias a Dios, her auntie Mana said. I have your mother on the line. Are you all right? asked her mother, fear and anxiety distorting her voice. Ixchel stood in front of the scorched gap in the vegetation the size of the spider. I'm in the safest place out in the country. How was it at your house, Jimena? Ixchel asked. Terrible. It felt like a giant was shaking my bed. All my dishes shattered. The kitchen is a mess. I'm sorry. I'll help you clean up, Ixchel said, looking into the kitchen through shards of glass and scraps of the officer's uniform. She shivered in the cool, pine-scented breeze. I don't mind at all. Thanks to the earthquake, Dante is dead, so he'll never abuse and murder another woman again, said Jimena. What happened? asked Ixchel. Jimena answered excitedly. It's on the news. Dante was driving under a freeway's overpass when it collapsed, burying him in his car. It will take at least a month to remove the concrete. Ixchel heard a smile in her aunt's voice. My Nino is missing. I'm going to look for him. Don't, said Hickshell. She wanted to wait and tell her aunt in person about the cat. I'll help you search as soon as I'm back. Hickshell, asked her mother. When are you coming back to Seattle? Jimena, you should come too. It would be nice to get away, said Jimena. Hickshell's mother asked, Hickshell, don't you think it's time to find a job and focus on your future? Ixchel stared into the kitchen at the women on their phones checking on loved ones. Together, they'd unleashed something very powerful she didn't understand, but which filled her with hope. I agree, Mummy. I applied for a job in the Coalition Against Violence and Sexual Assault. Where? her mother and aunt asked at the same time. Ixchel smiled, her eyes fixed on Yvette. In Seattle... I'm inviting a Mexican artist to come share the ways she's combating femicide, to teach us and build a coalition that will change the world.